This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week, the government told us once again that there's no more money. We will do what is necessary for as long as necessary to tackle inflation persistence and bring it back to the 2% target. Slightly more surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, the Labour Party seems to be echoing the same message. All of our plans will be built on a rock of economic and fiscal responsibility. Labour will not play fast and loose with the public finances. So have we reached a place where the politics of hope is all over? I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are the former Conservative Minister and, in fact, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, David Gork, and The Guardian's Gabby Hinsliff. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. The message over recent days from both the two main Westminster parties seems to be that when it comes to money, there isn't any. Um, And um, equally, that inflation is now so the main priority, the idea of controlling inflation, that everything, including public spending and tax cuts, has to really take second or third place to that. Let's have a listen to what the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, said in his Mansion House speech on Monday. Working with the bank, we will do what is necessary for as long as necessary to tackle inflation persistence and bring it back to the 2% target. Delivering sound money is our number one focus. That means taking responsible decisions on public finances, including public sector pay, because more borrowing is itself inflationary. As public sector workers carry on striking for better pay, another teachers union has announced it's going to be taking strike action on the day we recorded this. And they're striking, let's not forget, uh, also to address uh, funding for the services they work in. Reports this week say that the Treasury won't be funding a recommended 6% wage increase. Instead, the government will be asking departments to find savings themselves. Now, um, we're recording this on Wednesday. It's said that Rishi Sunak, upon his return to London, is going to make a final decision about this. I wonder, what's at stake for the government here? Because clearly... If they're going to insist on these pay increases being unfunded, that that then entails the prospect of strikes going on until and after the next election. Is that something they want? You know, is that a convenient political enemy to define themselves against? Or is this a hell of a hostage to fortune? David, what do you think? All the choices for the government are dreadful. That's the, that's the reality here. So they could just kind of go ahead with the pay review recommendations and find additional money. 
Um, but that's a fiscal loosening. That's putting more money into the economy at the time when the Bank of England is trying to sort of tighten things up. Uh, so probably interest rates have to go up a little bit higher than they would otherwise do. Or they could say, yes, we'll, we'll accept the pay recommendations, but try to find money from within budgets. But it's not clear if that is at all deliverable. You know, I think there's got to be big question marks about that. Or they can reject the pay review bodies, um, which is very uncomfortable given the uh, emphasis that was placed on the pay review body recommendations previously. Yeah, yeah, sacrosanct. Yeah, and as you say, likely to lead to industrial action. And also, and I think this is perhaps the most important point here, um, the public public sector pay is increasingly becoming uncompetitive because private sector pay is growing pretty strongly at the moment, at least relatively, and it's hard to recruit and retain staff in the public sector. So if you want to deliver public services at a level that is acceptable, you know, you you, you need to pay the staff to, to have it. So all the choices are great. I don't think this is this is a fight they're kind of relishing. This is a hard, ah, this is the opportunity to we'll take on the, the unions. They're they're left with three very difficult choices. By the way, choices that any incoming Labour government will yeah. will also have after the next election. What would you do? I think they need to meet the pay review recommendations, but they can't afford to go and borrow more, and they're going to have to raise additional revenue, and that's a really tough one. But that means putting up taxes. Ah, you'd put up taxes, so you would put up taxes so as to avoid further cuts to education, health, etc. I, I would. I should also add, I'm not looking to be re-elected as a Conservative <laughs> government. Uh, but, but if I was if, if I was if I was looking at this yeah, only you know, purely from what is the right policy response, yeah. actually I, I I share their concerns about inflation and fiscal loosening. To me, that the issue is much more about borrowing more than it is about a higher pay increase, because because it's still the case that public sector pay is lagging behind private sector. Pay. Do you think, Gabby, uh, the prospect of continuing strikes? will look like further proof of this government's inexorable decline, or could they use it to their advantage? I mean, it's not like Conservative governments haven't used strikes to their advantage in the past. I think it's really difficult to convince people that your hospital appointment being scrapped because the doctors are on strike is like massively a bonus and sign that, you know, things are going very well, or the fact that, yeah, again, you've got to take time off work because your kids can't go to school, you know, or the trains aren't running. These are not things that people are sitting back and thanking the government for at the moment. So I think I did wonder for a long time whether government was just sort of sitting back and hoping to starve people out essentially that you know it's expensive for public sector workers to strike it's costing them money at a time when money's tight for everyone where they sort of hoping that the strikes would fizzle out a bit but that doesn't although you there's some evidence of of you know decreased willingness to strike as the strikes go on i don't think it's kind of you know falling apart i mean what the argument that the money has to be found from within budget also does apart from all things you've mentioned is it puts the unions and the staff in a very difficult place if you take the pay rise as a teacher are you essentially accepting that the money for that is going to come out of your school budget? They won't. I mean, I I spoke to two or three striking teachers about a week or 10 days ago for a piece I was writing for The Guardian, and all of them said exactly that. There was no way they would accept a pay increase knowing that to do so would mean less teaching assistance, less study materials, less school trips, less buildings maintenance, etc. And I think that for some union, I mean, I don't even know that the NHS strikes are going to be settled by accepting the pay review body. I mean, there's such a big gap between what they're asking for and what pay review recommendations recommendations are so it's not even as simple as you know offer everyone 6.5 percent or whatever it is and get away with it yeah and that's in the midst of this general picture of uh 
extremely tight public finances and the idea that public borrowing is rendered even more problematic because of interest rates and what life is like in the slipstream of Liz Truss and quasi quarting. I mean, the idea that more cuts and pain are coming down the line is not exactly news. Jeremy Hunt was quite explicit about that in the autumn statement last year. And we're starting to see signs of the full-throated return of austerity, if it ever went away. I mean, personally, I don't think it ever went away. But what all that really puts in my mind is this sort of grim sense of the circularity now of the story of the Conservative Party in power. You know, we had Osbornomics and all those years of austerity. Then we got Theresa May and Boris Johnson and levelling up and build back better and all those post-Brexit promises. And now we're back to tighten your belts. Fiscal conservatism, if it hurts, it works. That's quite a journey to have been on, David, isn't it? The grim reality is that we are poorer as a country than we thought we were. And, and that happened after the global financial crisis. And it's happening now, combination of Brexit, COVID, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We are poor. You know, our prospects have, have been diminished. And we can have a debate about whose fault it is, but, the, but that is the reality. And, you know, what we can afford to, to spend on public services and what we have to collect in tax has got to reflect those underlying economic realities. And that, that's a pretty grim sort of situation that we're in. And either, you know, if, if that's where we are, either parties ought to come forward with a credible plan to increase economic growth. Uh, but they're going to have to be careful about you know, what levers they pull there in terms of fiscal levers, or, or we're going to have to kind of adjust to that new situation. You know, we we can uh, you know we, we we can afford to spend what we can afford to spend, or not and, spend, and, and not spend, well, right? Yeah. Because the point the point there is, I think you and I have had the good natured disagreements about this in the past. I think we it's have. about whether there's anything left to cut. I mean, I don't think there is. As you said, there's a, there are huge crises of recruit so called recruitment and retention in schools and hospitals. The, the state of buildings in the public sector is very often awful. We all know about potholes in the road, bin collections, what's happening to very, very important local services because councils haven't got any money. The idea of another 2010-esque round of austerity, I think, is unthinkable. It's your point that, that it's not really unthinkable, and in the end, that might be the medicine we have to swallow. Well, I mean, partly, let's, let's find an area of, of agreement, John, is, is we are in a different situation... <laughs> They're yeah. always good. We are in a different situation than we were in 2010. So in 2010, you know, public sector pay for the previous few years had been going up by more than private sector pay, which had been badly hit by the global financial crisis. So there was some opportunity there, if you like. The public's spending had been had grown very rapidly in the years up to 2010. There was more scope. And I think it's harder now, but you are still still faced with the sort of reality, a, a country that is poorer than it thought it was, you know, that, that is partly going to be reflected in the quality of public services that we have. That's the grim, you know, that's the grim reality. No, I think there's a trap there, isn't there, that we always fall into thinking of austerity as being spending cuts. Actually, austerity means balancing the gap between what you're bringing in and what you're spending. You can do it via spending cuts. You can do it via tax rises. You know, that is the other way round to do it. I mean, other than that, it is just looking at the sort of big areas of spending that I think Conservatives would probably rather die than cut now, which is things like triple lock on pensions. I mean, that is starting to look seriously unaffordable I agree. now but nobody wants to say that going into an election so I guess we won't say that but you know that is on the table <laughs> there isn't just the sort of 2010 Osborne way of deciding to 
live within your means. There are other ways of deciding to live within your means where you distribute the pain a bit more fairly, frankly. It's a grim feeling, though, isn't it? That sense that cuts and so-called economies and some of that talk about, oh, efficiency savings and back office. And we all know where that goes, particularly when there's nothing left to cut, that that's back in the air. Yeah, it is depressing. And it's also, I think it's, in a way, like, without wishing to, like, plunge everyone listening into a sort of sense of to utter gloom. That's, that's <laughs> it's what we do every week. Well, that's what what we do every week. week. Yeah. You know, your, your <laughs> daily misery hour. Um, that I think basically, it's harder than in, in 2010, both for the reasons that, that um, you know, they've just said, which is, you know, when we're not coming from coming off a high, but also you're simultaneously dealing with inflation. I mean, at least in 2010, the argument was meant to be, you know, we cut back now and then we unleash rampant growth from somewhere that we then use to kind of, you know, to pick ourselves back up again not that anyone's exactly got a recipe for achieving rampant growth now but if you had you'd be worried that it would be inflationary yeah and you'd be worried that actually you were trying to go in the other direction that you know there's an extra problem in the mix that you didn't have in 2010 now while some sort of liberal bleeding hearts quite quite rightly worry about spending restraint and cuts and austerity there is a sort of parallel anxiety on the conservative side which is about the mounting impossibility of the tax cuts they would have liked the government to bring in before the next election. I mean, that's that's toast now, which is another sign, isn't it, of the weakness of Rishi Sunak and the fragility of this government as far as, um, you know, the opinions of its backbenchers are concerned. That's another thing that's in the air, David. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always been pie in the sky, in my view, that, that they were going to be able to deliver big tax cuts in this parliament. You know, you look at, as you mentioned earlier, what Jeremy Hunt said in his autumn statement, you look at the spending plans after the next general election, which are very, very tight. The the idea that there's there's scope in the public finances in a sustainable way to have big tax cuts, I think, has always been unrealistic. And yeah, that promise was there to try to sort of pacify the sort of trussite end of the Conservative Party. But they're still there. And, yeah, they and even though the truss Quateng experiment collapsed, catastrophically very very quickly you're still hearing the voices of oh we should have given it a go you know blobonomics is not working and and i i i <laughs> real trust has never, never been, been tried. tried yes okay it was tried but it never it wasn't persisted with it the conservative party is behind rishi sunak to the next general election but if it goes wrong then you'll start to hear the arguments of only be delivered tax cuts, et cetera, et cetera. And so, Gabby, what, what is likely to be their pitch to the electorate? This comes down to Rishi Sunak's equally fragile five pledges, which he probably isn't going to make. One of which, let's not forget, was to, I can't remember, halve inflation by Christmas or something stupid. Yeah, that's kind of not happening. Stopping small boats is kind of not happening. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not looking great. I mean, his best hope is that people can't remember what the five pledges are and therefore can't remember that they haven't happened, I suppose. But if you think most elections come down to a choice between like, the opposition's always, time for a change! You know, they've screwed it all up, let us in. And the best in common argument is, you know, don't let them ruin all the good work we've achieved so far. You know, and, and that that is not a powerful no, argument from the Conservative Party. Don't let them ruin this, 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 this sort of crater in which we find ourselves, <laughs> this apocalyptic wasteland. If you look at what the Bank of England was saying on Wednesday about, you know, the expectations for mortgages people are looking at paying it was an average 500 quid a month more they're saying by, by yeah, 2025 yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know yeah. over a year that's going to feel like what 10 8 grand 10 grand pay cut yeah people. yeah you yeah, know yeah. that's huge of course 
They are the wages. No tax cut is going to make up for that. Even if you suddenly decided that you could find a tax cut, you're still going to feel worst off. Yeah, yeah. The politics of what Harold Macmillan originally called the property-owning democracy, a phrase Margaret Thatcher was very fond of, are going to come and bite them unquestionably. Anyway, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we'll look on the other side uh, of the House of Commons at the Labour Party and whether we might be in a time on both right and left when hope is something we're going to have to give up looking for. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back. We're going to talk now, or try to, about something that is linked to a lot of what we were discussing in part one. What politics on both the Conservative and Labour sides is offering in the midst of the the ever-increasing doom and gloom of the UK's economic climate and why, across both parties, there is an emphasis on spending restraint and fiscal rectitude and perhaps, as a consequence, no real message of hope. Let's talk about the Labour Party, first of all. Wes Streeting, the fast-rising, inescapable Shadow Health Secretary, had a comment piece in The Observer last weekend in which he said, and I quote, we are being so careful to only make promises we know we can keep. The only thing worse than no hope is false hope. It will disappoint some of our friends that we are not pledging support for every cause they believe in. There's your slogan for Labour Party conference um, in the autumn, incidentally. No hope, not false hope, which I think has a certain ring to it. It seems that the Labour Party really is terrified of the same things it was terrified of when the coalition was back in power. The idea that the Labour Party left to its own devices, will spend money it hasn't got. And I suppose the mess Liz Truss made is the sort of newest justification for that position. But doesn't that lead, I wonder, to um, a sense that their platform, their policy platform, is becoming increasingly empty? This is what Rachel Reeves uh, said to Laura Kunzberg last Sunday about all this. All of our plans will be built on a rock of economic and fiscal responsibility. Labour will not play fast and loose with the public finances because the people who pay the price for that are people who own their own homes, who wish to own their own homes, people running small businesses who have been terribly affected by the turbulence in the economy, the increases in mortgage rates, the increases in prices in the shops. We will never put family finances at risk. Broadly speaking... I don't think, you know, the Labour Party is going to wildly diverge from this line that we're going to get all the way up to the election, which is going to be, we have to be careful, we have to be prudent, times are tough, there's not any money, sorry, we have to say no. You know, there's a lot of that all the way to the election. And I think one of the reasons for it, miserable as it is, is that the economic 
fundamentals by the time the election happens are not going to be vastly different probably than they are now. They may be worse than they are now. Labour's always terrified of saying before it takes power, you know, that they're going to spend any money. And what they've done in the past is kind of take power saying we're terribly, terribly, terribly responsible and then a couple of years in start spending money. And that may be the plan this time around. But I think there's a second sort of corollary this time around, which isn't just worrying what the voters will think about you. It's worrying what the markets will think about you. It's worrying that promising, you know, large amounts of borrowing is going to spook the markets all over again and Britain's already assumed to be a basket case and blah, 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 blah. I think there are sound economic reasons for being as cautious as they are, but it's miserable and depressing to listen to. I think most Labour voters will go into the ballot box hoping that they don't mean it, hoping, as I'm sure the Labour front bench is, that, you know, a couple of years in, things will look different and they start to spend or they start to say things that they're scared to say now. But, you know, that that's a gamble to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, and the proof of, of some of this is very, very direct, you know. I get the sense sometimes that the Labour Party now is increasingly sort of running against where it was about 18 months ago, you know, the £28 billion a year Green Prosperity Pledge, which was the sort of centrepiece thing of its last party conference, has now been postponed and diluted. And who knows when that's going to arrive? That's one obvious example. They're running against, as much as anything, what they're running against is the 2019 manifesto. Because there's inevitably, so every time they announce, you know, that manifesto, most of it has been, you know, large parts of it have been junked. Large parts of it, I'm sure, are still to be junked. So, you know, that means every time they make any announcement of any policy, the instant response is, oh, does this mean you're not going to do that you were going to do before do you mean you're not good there's going to be a constant process of dropping and ditching and disappointing but the trouble is that's that's fine if what you're saying instead is eye-catching and exciting and you think well it's fine that we're not doing that anymore because this is really interesting but when it's kind of along the lines of I mean I, I don't have anything against oracy in schools you know I think it's great let's all do public speaking but it's not it's not revolutionary is it yeah it's thin gruel it's thin gruel by comparison dispassionately, David, as a sort of observer of politics, do you think that's the danger of where the Labour Party is? That it just sounds like it issues a no every week and I'm still wondering what the yeses are? Yeah, it is the risk. But again, you know, what what are the other options? I mean, look, I'm, I'm perhaps as a, as a former Treasury Minister, my sympathies are with Rachel Reeves in putting out a kind of tough message because, as I was saying earlier, these are kind of the, the realities. And... You know, she and again, this reminds me a little bit of sort of 2010. You've got the task of winning the election, and you know you want to reassure the markets as well, but you know you also the electorate. And and Labour does have a, a an electoral weakness in in being seen as irresponsible with the public finances. So you know, opposition is very often about reassurance, but you then also got to be thinking about well, look, if we're going to win the election, are we going to be able to function as a government? And you do need to start working now on expectations because there's going to be a lot of people who will vote Labour in the hope that you know, you know, austerity is behind us, you can turn the taps on, you know, public sector pay is going to go up, it's going to be great, it's going to be like the early 2000s and you know, it's all going to be hunky-dory. And, and the reality is that that's not what the next Labour government is going to be in a position to deliver. It's going to be pretty tough. Yeah, I, yeah. I think the real political difficulty will come halfway through a, a, a Labour government where people are saying, well, you know, what's what's the point of a Labour government? You're not doing anything very different. But if hope is lacking from a centre-left party, the centre-left parties pitched to the electorate in such dreadful economic times, then politics, in terms of how much it engages people, is in a mess, isn't it? 
It is. But what you're looking for, what the 97 government was very good at doing was coming up with sort of cost-free ways of sounding hopeful. Like, we're going to have an ethical foreign policy. I mean, and we all know what happened to that later. But, you know, it wasn't an expensive... It wasn't yeah, expensive. Or, symbo- or sim- symbolic social democratic things. We get rid of this and therefore that pays for that, right? So we get rid of this assisted places scheme and it shrinks class sizes, you know. We bring in the windfall tax and we put young people back to work. The one thing that Labour did get into trouble with in 1997 was health because on in other... You know, in other kind of departments, you could say, you know, we'll have a big defence review about what we should spend money on. That gets us over the sort of two years where we're not really spending anything. But on health, people really wanted something instantly to happen to the NHS and it didn't. And tempers were really, really fraying by the end of that that sort of first two years because there's not much that you can say that sounds exciting but doesn't deliver in health. In other departments, it's easier. You know, you can see where streeting is starting to talk up reform instead of, you know, money. Okay, you know, there are things you can say, there are things you can do, but they're not, you can't get out at the end of the day from the fact that public services are really underfunded and need more money. Yeah, yeah. But if you end if you end up saying false hope is worse than no hope, right? You're in a bad political place, I would argue. If if that's the loudest thing you've got to say, right? That points up a, a, a severe set of absences in your politics, doesn't it? Ideally that sentence should then go but <laughs> here yes, are the things we can be but. hopeful about. You know, not yeah, yeah. just, well, tough, that's it. <laughs> tough, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, David, anyway. Two things. One is, you know, there, there, is, a, there is quite a sizable bit of the electorate that might respond well to some honesty. I mean, I'm conscious that there'll be others who won't, but, but you know, you can win some respect and it's much easier to do from opposition than in, than in government when you've been in power for a long time so so there is that point the second point i would make is yeah if they can find other things to sort of say where look this is what we're going to do to deliver growth that is not expensive so you know i think the fact that the conservatives have vacated planning reform as an issue is is a bit of an opening for labor which they are exploiting the other very obvious one um which is our relationship with the european union and uh, and i do you know let's not reopen that whole issue today but sound well, of Keir Starmer running out of the room in fear well quite but you could you can see how a, a Labour government will be coming be under increased pressure to kind of go further on Brexit because you know there is a line of something that you could do that is actually cheap it's economically fiscally cost free and something that that could bring higher levels of growth and and you know I've, I've long been in the view that that argument will really pick up after a Labour government is, is elected. Yeah, not this side of the election. The other thing that I wish they'd come back to is actually something that that um, David Cameron picked up as an argument in 2010, which is this whole concept of general well-being. You know, what is there? Are there things you could do for the gen- that improve qualities of people's lives, that make people happier, that don't necessarily involve spending vast amounts of money and you don't well, wouldn't that sound absurd you say well that's very nice but my school's falling down i can't get an appointment with the gp the roads are riddled with potholes and my elderly relative social care package has been cut to a 10 minute visit once a fortnight and you yet I mean? your alternative we, you is your... saying i'm not doing anything about any of those things and just don't come back to me for two years so i think in the meantime you <laughs> no have hope's to, better than false hope to say, see you have to be talking about something <laughs> and i yes. think you know to be to just be able to offer nothing um, is a situation that no political party wants to be in. There is a bigger issue here in conclusion, it seems to me, which is that everybody knows that in all sorts of ways, this country is in an awful mess and has probably hit a variety of dead ends, right? And those things have happened in the past. You can make the argument that that was the case in 1979. So this isn't an argument 
about a solely left-wing definition of hope. For a lot of voters, when Margaret Thatcher came along in 1979, she was offering hope. She said, I'm going to get this country out of this mess. And eventually she did this, this, this and this. And as far as a lot of people thought, that's what she did. I, I, by contrast, think, as I said a moment ago, that what's remarkable about politics now, on the Conservative and Labour sides, is there is no message of things can be better than this and... If you vote for us, we are going to get us out of this mess. It doesn't feel like that. It feels like, well, I'm sorry, we're you know we're competent and we'll do better at the execution of power than the other lot. But really, the pain is going to carry on for quite a while, and that seems to be it. And I think if you're in that state, there's an argument for saying that democracy itself has sort of failed. Really, if you're not offering hope, which is the most basic currency of politics, I don't really know where you are. Well, you're not offering answers. That's the trouble. It's not just hope. It's that you have answers to the problems. I get the sense more strongly than I ever have actually now that that on the sort of really big questions, people don't know. It's not that there's an answer out there that no one's just lit on yet, but there is a brilliant solution that will, you know, solve all our problems and miraculously transforms back to growth. It's not that there is one, but people think it's too expensive or too difficult or the voters won't like it. It's that genuinely nobody knows. It's going to be an underwhelming election, Gabby, isn't it? I really hope that's not the case, but I really fear that's the case. And I think I've probably reached the stage in the electoral cycle where you start looking outside this country, <laughs> really, for optimistic signs. You know, you kind of look, America, the US has got inflation coming down to its lowest in god knows how many years now you know european economies seem to be performing better than ours you can see signs of sort of hope or signs of people doing things differently ambitiously and radically all around the world just can't see it here yeah and that that is the one thing that cheers me up is you think okay other countries will find a way through this eventually presumably we might learn something from them but clearly that's going to be a a extremely long drawn out process well it's a really cheery thought on which to close The point is that if you don't deliver a message of hope, and I don't necessarily mean that solely in terms of policy, I am talking about rhetoric and story and all those things, which in the end are what probably gets voters chiefly to put their their cross in a particular box. If those things are missing, you leave a gap then, potentially, for very, very unpleasant forces to fill, right? And that's part of the story of Brexit, let's not forget, is a lot of people who felt that politics, mainstream politics, have nothing to offer compared to the often awful reality of their lives, and therefore they voted to just upturn the Monopoly board, and we all know what happened. And I worry that in the midst of this absence of hope, we might be moving into similarly dangerous waters. David, you were nodding. I... I fear you're right on this, John. So, so I mean, as far as I can see, we assume Labour will win the next election. But as we've talked about, it's going to be a pretty tough time. And I don't think that there's some you know, lever to pull that is going to be completely transformative. And you know, that is going to be an opportunity for, for both the populist yeah. right and the populist yeah. left. Um, and you know, to some extent, I think my argument is that that you know centrists need to be prepared to kind of go out and make arguments that yeah okay yeah the government's kind of got this right but it needs to go further and faster on this on the things that can deliver economic growth gabby can you say anything to cheer us up in the uh, minute or two we have left happy talk keep talking i am happy slightly talk. racking my brains the only thing that <laughs> it's more of a long-term horizonal thing but the only thing um that ever reminds that cheers me up is thinking back to i mean i was born in the 70s when everything was rubbish you know middle of an oil shock everything was disastrous we we're all going to hell in a handcart you know and then i kind of hit my 20s in the 90s when suddenly you know i just have that just happened to be you know the perfect 
time to be 20 years old. And my parents were born in the middle of the war when it was a ridiculous mad time to have a baby and literally, you know, an apocalyptic time to grow up and then managed to be young in the 60s, which was fantastic. And you look for and think, okay, maybe it's 20 years from now, but everything is cyclical. Everything comes around eventually. I know this sounds like you're saying, I'm saying that you have to wait 20 years to be in any way cheered up <laughs> compared to where we are now. But um, that's probably the best I can do. That's a right great now. message eventually, to go out on. Eventually, all things pass. Just eventually. Excellent. You heard it here first on Politics Weekly UK. 2040s are going to be amazing. <laughs> We're going to have a great time in our 70s. Yeah. We'll see you in the, the sunlit uplands of 2043. Join us then. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to the next 20 years of Politics with the UK, wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review, preferably a nice one. We'll be back next week. We'll also be here in the 2040s when everything is going to be great. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is about Axel Cacoutier and the executive producers of Maz Ebtaj and Nicole Jackson. <laughs> I'm out of here. I'm taking early retirement. Goodbye. <laughs> this is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.